From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Bovin family, who lost their home in the Marshall Fire, returned to sift through the ashes. It meant reconstructing their multi-story house in their minds. When it burned, everything came straight down. You could tell when you were standing in the kitchen, you were also standing in part of a bathroom, as well as part of a hallway. We knew we had the Christmas tree, but we also knew that my father's uh, dresser had fallen in that same spot. Then another follow-up with some of the 370,000 Coloradans who lost their jobs when COVID hit. This is Daniel. Hey, Daniel. This is Andy Kenny at Colorado Public Radio. We spoke back in April 2020, right after you had quit your uh, liquor store job, if you remember. Yeah, of course I remember you. I hear your voice on the radio all the time. (laughs) Have they bounced back? Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Bovin family was able to return to the little that remains of their home in Louisville. We met Larry and Mary just after the Marshall Fire as they were figuring out temporary housing. I caught up with their adult son, Joe, who this past weekend helped them sort through the ashes. He asked a friend to photograph any items they recovered including a curio that would fit into the palm of your hand. It's some occupied Japan, and it was a little girl and a little boy that were uh, kissing. But you can see that what's happened in this picture is because it was behind a curio box, the glass has melted all over the top of it. And so essentially it's become amorphous. You really can't tell what it is any longer. And so that's essentially what the majority of the things that we're recovering look like at this point. Unrecognizable. Unrecognizable in most cases. You know, almost everything we found doesn't have any like practical value anymore. Nobody would, you're not going to pay money for it any longer, right? It was, and it used to have considerable worth, a lot of it. A lot of it was attached to memories. The idea now is how do we find some of these memories that maybe can be carried on down the generations so that people continue to tell those stories? Because the stories are connected to those objects. You know, we had a plate that came over on the Lusitania. So is, can we find that, you know, and even put those pieces back together again so that we can really just put those memories back together again? And, and a lot of it was really just for my mom to, you know, just because of the MS that, that, that really struck her corpus callosum, you know, a lot of times it's good to have those types of objects around the house um, because that really kind of helps her to start to recall some memories as mm. well and, and kind of tell stories as well. So Now, when you say that retrieving objects helps continue the family story. You mean to say the family story before the fire, but also inherently, yeah. the, the state of the objects is going to help you tell that story too, isn't it? Exactly. And so, I mean, we had really hundreds of years of history in that house. So that was, it was generations of, um, of objects that have come from, you know, the old country and have been carried on throughout our, our lives. And now, even the objects that, that we've been able to find with inside of the ashes, you know, we're going to be able to put those up and we're going to look back and we're going to say, you know, this was just another challenge that we were able to get through together. And, you know, here we are today. 
that that will become part of the story. That will become part of you know what carries on when we're gone, and you know our generations continue to uh, to move on through time and history. You mentioned the plates that had been brought over on the Lusitania before it sank. Did you find any remnants of those plates? Yeah, we did. Uh, we found a couple parts of it, and it looks like we might be able to find a third. And if we can find those, then we'll be able to glue those back together. It's been nice. I mean, it's it, there's also been a lot of disappointments. Um, you like know, the, what? The two- yeah, I imagine disappointment around that which could not be recovered. Yeah, exactly. And so to the two things we really went in looking for, we can't get back. That we went in really looking for my grandfather's bronze star that he got. We've looked in that space and, and it's likely completely melted down. Um, and then we have the silver bells that we each got when we were born from our grandparents. You know, we found the Christmas tree and it was cool. I found a bunch of little like mouse ornaments that I had done when I was like five years old and whatnot. And those made it through because they were ceramic, you know. And so anything that was that had gone through a kiln, you know, obviously survived not in a perfect state by any stretch of the imagination, but it survived. But we definitely found pools of silver throughout the house. So it looks like those bells are, are no longer in existence. Those silver bells given to you at your birth, those were Christmas ornaments? Yeah, they were Christmas ornaments. And then we would use them to go um, on New Year's. We'd all run outside and ring them, you know, when we were little kids. So there's just memories attached to it all. I want to note in the photographs that you shared with me, and I'll tweet some of these at CPR Warner. You're wearing masks. Um, mm-hmm. That is highly encouraged. Officials yeah. in Boulder County have been noting a few things about those returning to the remnants of the Marshall Fire. One is to indeed wear masks and good ones at that, because ash, they say, is very caustic and contains toxins, substances that can cause cancer. Fine particulates could enter the bloodstream and damage internal organs. They're also saying that you should be up to date on tetanus shots, and they're offering tetanus shots, in fact, to evacuees. Can we just talk for a moment about how you felt out there, safety-wise? Yeah, so, I mean, I I definitely felt like I was in the middle of a very carcinogenic uh, situation. I did not feel particularly safe. We went through and we took all of the FEMA guidelines and so we had on leather gloves and we had on the, our masks that are, you know, medical grade masks. Also, we're wearing boots. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it's still scary. You, know, you don't know what you're really breathing into your lungs. With that said, about midway through the day, the Red Cross also came by and they delivered masks as well. They delivered some gloves. They delivered water. So that was really nice. Your parents built this home and you moved into it in your teen years. So you, you had a bedroom in this home. I had a bedroom, yeah. Yeah. Could you understand where your bedroom was, where it had been? So one of the things that we did when we got there was really to look at the layout of the home and then really think of it in terms of a three-dimensional space that had collapsed on itself. And so then it became, here's my bedroom over here in the corner. And I know everything that was inside of that bedroom. We know all the different dolls and the teddy bears and everything else that was in that. And then really, how did everything just fall flat? So essentially what had happened was it had burned from the basement up. And so when it burned, everything came straight down. You could tell when you were standing in the kitchen, you were also standing in part of a bathroom as well as part of a hallway. We knew we had the Christmas tree, but we also knew that my father's uh, dresser had fallen in that same spot. So you're you're, you're reconstructing layers. You're reconstructing stories. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Stories and 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 stories. The stories of the object (laughs) and which story of the house they were on. 
Exactly. And then meanwhile, you know, we're also kind of taping off areas. So we're digging that path that goes through and making sure that you're going around all those spaces where you might be actually creating some type of damage or further damage on any of those objects or those stories that you might be crushing beneath your feet. Uh, so, yeah, and to answer your question more directly, um, I was able to find my bedroom. You know, nothing that that I had was left inside of that room. My parents had put a bunch of dolls in there, so those were all gone. And, you know, most of my stuff, I had a Commodore 64. I mean, oh, well. The old com- <laughs> the old computer. Yeah. I, you know, I used to keep all that stuff around just for the fun of it. But, there but is- I kept it at my parents' house because, you know, clearly we can junk up their home. <laughs> <laughs> How many hours did you spend this weekend doing this work? And will you go back? I was down there five hours Four hours, four hours on Saturday, and then I went up again for another three to four hours on Sunday as well. And then we'll go back this week. And there's a couple things that are left that we know it's very unlikely, at least, that they burned because they were, in one case, there's a fossil. We had a lot of, like, uh, oh, first edition books. So I had a lot of, like, first edition Oz books we had a collection of. Oh, wow. And so, like, it was kind of amazing to go through. And, like, I actually thought some of them had survived. And so I went over to go look at them and like, you could see the pages still had writing on them, but I reached down to touch them. And as soon as I touched that book, it just dissolved in my hands. <sighs> I mean, and the similar thing with like, we had a Bible that we had been reading out of since we were little kids. You know, I'm really grateful you shared these photos with us. I'm grateful you're sharing the stories behind these objects with us. But I, I need to ask a kind of meta question, Joe, which is what makes this conversation to you more than just the fire equivalent of rubbernecking. I'm kind of I'm kind of staring at these objects that you took pictures of and I I'm cognizant of the possibility of exploiting this loss. It's a really good question. It's really I I think it's just about telling the story about it's about it's about telling the story of, of loss, of what it means to lose something. It's also, I think, a story about value, right? What, what is value? Where does value begin? Um, what do any objects really mean when what's really important is, is the fact that everybody's alive? We didn't even think about these objects until two days later. Like, the first two days, all we talked about was how happy we were that everybody was alive. Mm. Um, it's just kind of a look into the experience itself, you know, and what would it be like to have this happen to you? And I think that it allows for people to, you know, feel a a common bond. Right. And I think that that's what we've gotten out of this. If there's anything that's positive that's come out of this, it's honestly, it's nice to have seen just so many people come together, especially in today's age when there's so much division. Thousands of other Coloradans are experiencing what your family's experiencing. Exactly. Our house is a microcosm of, of the broader issue that's around. Joe, thank you for being with us. And our commitment to you is to keep telling your story uh, so that people have as uh, holistic a sense of it as possible, uh, as long as you'll allow us to keep telling it. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for kind of bringing these tales and, and the, I guess, really these challenges and, and ultimately our solutions that we're finding to the community. Joe Boven, who helped his parents sift through the remains of their home in Louisville following the Marshall Fire. Indeed, I've tweeted photos of what they found at CPR Warner. By the way, Joe's parents, Mary and Larry, had planned to move into church housing for a while in the Denver suburb of Edgewater, 
but it just felt too far away from their community. So with insurance help, they've moved into an extended stay hotel closer to their Louisville neighborhood. Survivors of the Marshall Fire don't have to sift through the rubble alone. An evangelical Christian nonprofit called Samaritan's Purse offers help. So far, they say, 170 families have asked for their assistance. The group is also looking for volunteers. We can go in and help the families recover keepsakes, things that uh, people would not imagine that could be retrieved. You can lift a wall and uh, sift through the ashes. You can find uh, military dog tags from their grandfather that served in World War II. Luther Harrison is a vice president at Samaritan's Purse. They have an office in Englewood and are working with Boulder Valley Christian Church closer to the burn area. A lot of our volunteers actually have lost their homes in fires. They come because it's their way of paying it back and saying, it's hard for me to say, I know how you feel, Ryan, if I've never been in your shoes. But when you have someone that's been through that same valley and says, hey, I made it through the dark spot, but now I've rebuilt my house. I'm back on solid rock and ready to go. Everything we do, it's a free service. It's a free gift of uh, people that love each other and want to come and help a stranger they've never met. Samaritan's Purse, a reference to Luke chapter 10, by the way, has been doing this type of work for 26 years. They've responded to other Colorado fires in that time, wearing special suits, respirators, goggles. Right now, we're on seven different disasters. We're in Whatcom County, Washington on a flood. We're still on three sites in Hurricane Ida in Louisiana. And the tornadoes that just hit uh, Arkansas and Kentucky, we're two sites there. So when the fires broke out in Boulder, it's like, all right, let's run there as well. Our volunteer bandwidth is churches all over the United States that come and serve. And we just want to be that good Samaritan. Remember, in the Samaritan, that person was not named specifically. So it's not about us. We're not here to get any glory or anything from it. We just want to show these homeowners God loves them, hasn't forgotten them. And here are some hands and feet that are people that are willing to jump in there and help them. Harrison says teams will be on the ground in Boulder County for as long as it takes to help survivors unearth what was spared in the fires. And we'll be right back with a different type of pandemic long hauler. The folks who lost their jobs when the world shut down and who still feel the economic effects. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In an emergency, minutes and seconds count. But dispatch tapes from the Marshall Fire show that crews lost crucial early minutes because they couldn't find the start of the fire. By the time they did, it was too late. Fire's moving through the property and it's going to be moving into some homes. I'm going to need additional units. CPR News Investigations analyzed those dispatch tapes. You can read what they reveal at CPR.org. When the pandemic arrived in Colorado almost two years ago, it brought on a tidal wave of layoffs. More than 370,000 Coloradans lost their jobs when the state locked down. For several months, the unemployment rate was at historic highs. And back then, CPR's Andrew Kenny spent a lot of time talking with people caught in the teeth of that unemployment crisis. Well, recently, he checked back in with them to see where they are now. Hi, Andy. Hello. Tell us how you got started on this unemployment coverage. Well, that goes back to the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, or rather the beginning of pandemic restrictions, where we suddenly saw these kind of widespread economic lockdowns that we had never really seen in this country before. 
And I really remember it felt like the earth was just shifting beneath all of our feet. Like whole industries, hospitality, recreation, a lot of retail stores were just shutting down. And unemployment became this overnight news story where people were just very desperate. The system was failing. People were waiting for hours and hours on the phone for help. And a lot of times all they would hear when they dialed the uh, the support number would be, We are currently experiencing a high demand for callbacks. And so I jumped into it and I ended up spending a lot of the first year of the pandemic doing what I would call a combination of journalism and customer service, basically documenting how the system was working and what was going wrong and talking to tons of people, even a lot of people who didn't end up in stories about all the issues that they were facing. And along the way, I got to see firsthand what this sudden crisis was doing to people, people in really desperate circumstances. I mean, here we are nearly two years on. And now the dominant story is labor shortages. I mean, not enough people for all the jobs out there. Yeah. And I had already been thinking about what happened to all those people I was in touch with. And as the labor story picked up, I started wondering, well, how did that affect those people who were laid off in the pandemic unemployment wave? We know that the economies come roaring back in a lot of ways. But I also had the feeling that you can't just snap your fingers and come back from a really long period of unemployment like with nothing wrong. So I just started calling and emailing people that I had met throughout the pandemic to find out what is their life like now? What's changed? And what did you learn? (laughs) Well, I heard some stories, a lot of stories that really illustrate bigger changes in the economy. And I want to start with one of the first people that I'd met back in my reporting. This is Daniel. Hey, Daniel. This is Andy Kenny at Colorado Public Radio. We spoke back in April 2020, right after you had quit your uh, liquor store job, if you remember. Yeah, of course I remember you. I hear your voice on the radio all the time. So that's Daniel Garcia. He's 34. And he tells a story that is basically the most positive version of what came out of this long haul unemployment. He had quit his job over safety concerns really early in the pandemic because he said the place was basically unsanitary. He got on unemployment while he searched for a job, and he was basically out of work over the next year plus. You know, from what I understand and have read and heard, I'm one of the lucky ones to have gotten my unemployment pretty quickly, gotten it in with no issues. And overall, it just helped me survive the pandemic, not just on a physical material level, but also the mental level. And while he was off work, he decided that he was going to change his trajectory, that this was his sign. He had already gone to law school previously, So he took a couple of additional courses and now has this dream job that he's recently gotten working as a guardian ad litem in El Paso County. He's somebody who now represents kids in the legal system. Things are great right now. I love my job. Um, I love the office I work at. I feel like my life has really turned around and everything, considering everything that's going on in the world. Total change from his old retail job. What does Daniel's story tell us about the larger economic picture, do you think? I think it says a couple things. And the first is that a lot of people are back to work. Coloradans lost, like you said at the beginning, 370,000 jobs almost overnight. The state has since recovered the vast majority of those. And to put it in numbers, like Colorado today has uh, maybe 98% of the total jobs being worked that it had before the pandemic arrived. So a lot of jobs are back. And what's really interesting about Daniel's story is it represents a broader trend where this disruption pushed some workers to switch careers, oftentimes into something better or that pays better or that's better for them. 
And a lot of them are not eager to go back to retail and restaurant jobs. I mean, how common is that change Daniel made, leaving a retail job in particular? Well, if you look at the stats, a lot of other industries have rehired back to their original workforce sizes and then some. Retail has just about made it back to where it was pre-pandemic. Restaurants have plateaued at maybe 95% of their previous workforce. And I asked an economist, Brian Lewandowski of CU Boulder, about this. He said that in past recoveries, you would assume that, you know, if the workforce is not back, it's because demand isn't back. There's not enough customers to sustain the recovery. But this time, it's because there's not enough workers in many cases. People like Daniel Garcia are moving on, leaving those lower wage retail restaurant jobs to really struggle to hire. And I, I think that that's one thing that's very different in this cycle is there's plenty of demand for these workers. We, we see that in all of the help wanted signs, but there's not enough of them to go around. And then meanwhile, as those low wage sectors are struggling to hire, a lot of the more mid-wage or even higher wage jobs, whether it's technical jobs, computer software jobs, even working in an Amazon warehouse, those are starting to skyrocket in terms of their workforce size. The number of people, like for example, who are working in transportation and logistics, like at Amazon, is up more than 10% from its pre-pandemic level. It strikes me that a lot of this is about desire, people following more of their desires in terms of what they want from a job. Uh, going back to Daniel specifically, uh, he already had, I gather, a lot of the education he needed to mm -hmm. move into a more desirable job. But how common is that? I would guess it's a little bit less common. I think that what's happening more often is that uh, people were unemployed for long periods of time, and they used that time productively. And Daniel did this as well, to learn new skills or to wait for a better job to become available. What I heard from several people is that the pandemic, which was this really terrifying disruption and which, you know, being unemployed for a year is not fun, but that it eventually became a catalyst for them to make a positive change. And who else fit that bill? One person whose story really illustrates this is Drea Hall. She had been a service worker all her life. She was most recently a bartender at Red Robin. And she said that service work had been maybe not the best option, but the best way to pay the bills for her. I don't have a lot of skills and it was really fast money, easy money for um, somebody like me, you know, that didn't get to do, you know, didn't get to finish college. But she's 41 and had been thinking for a while that she needed to make a change. You know, I had been wanting to get out of it for a few years, which was crazy. You know, I've been, I was like, man, I'm getting too old for this. And then maybe the change got made for her. Yeah, that's exactly right. She lost her job right at the beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of restaurant workers. The next year was really tough. She was able to collect unemployment, but it was really spotty. She spent months last year with no income because uh, she was locked out by a glitch. Meanwhile, she was looking really hard for a job. But she didn't want to go back to the service industry because her son has cystic fibrosis and they couldn't risk getting COVID. And, you know, that kind of medical health concern was really common among workers. So she wanted a remote gig. She was trying to learn some new skills with online courses, but she didn't even have a functioning computer. So it was really slow going at first. The thing is, is I was completely unskilled and there was a bunch of other people looking for the same thing. And some of them probably had at least some experience or something, you know. Stiff competition. So what happened to her? Well, like a lot of people, she saw things turn around in 2021. The labor market started getting tighter, and this was a first for her. Recruiters started reaching out to her, like multiple recruiters with job offers, and she took the first one that came through. 
I was so ecstatic when I, you know, when I finally got a job, I couldn't believe it that, you know, because <laughs> it just seemed like it was never going to happen. It was a remote work gig doing uh, customer service for a health insurance company. They shipped her a computer and everything. And suddenly she had achieved without really meaning to this longtime goal of switching to kind of office and remote work. From bartending. Uh, another example here, I guess, of things working out for people here. Well, yes and no. She got the type of job that she was hoping for, but she also took a pretty significant pay cut. She says she's now making about $2,200 a month in, in take-home income, and that's pretty hard to survive on in the Denver area. Luckily, she owns their home. So when I asked her if she felt like she's doing better financially now than before the pandemic, she said, Not really. I really feel like I'm in the same social class, maybe, you know, just because of the fact that I make so little. <laughs> She said it's nice to have benefits like paid time off, but that basically everyone should have that anyway. I don't care if you work at 7-Eleven as a cashier. Everybody should get paid time off. And by the way, she still can't afford health insurance. And she said that she's a long way from, say, being able to save for retirement. So not all like golden stories of economic ascension here. You used a term earlier in this conversation, Andy, about long haul effects Hmm. Uh, which is interesting because we think of long-haul COVID in a way this is like long-haul economic COVID. Yeah. The, the idea that people, when they lose their job, are out of work for a while, and it can really set them back in major hmm. ways. But, you know, it sounds like it's a little more complex than that. Yeah, in a way, this pandemic has had long-haul effects for the entire economy, for workers and employers alike. And it's proved really difficult to measure what this has all meant for people's economic lives in the long run. We still don't know. You know, again, to go back to the theme that we've had with those first couple of stories, there's that indication that a lot of workers are getting like more, more agency, more decision-making power over their lives. Another example, you see fewer people are working multiple jobs right now than before the pandemic. Like I talked to Martha Pasquale, she's 65. She used to work part-time as an office manager to supplement her job as a school receptionist. Well, guess what? The school recently made her full-time, and she was finally able to quit that second job. And so my November check was the first time in four years that my paycheck was more than my rent. But at the same time, we know that despite, again, those positives, the last couple of years have done lasting damage for a lot of people. Here's Kate Watkins. She's the chief economist for Colorado's Legislative Council. The hardest hit have continued to be the hardest hit in many instances. What she's saying and what a lot of economists and service providers have said is that people who were homeless or had a criminal record, had other things that hurt your ability to be employed, those are still major barriers. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And Andrew Kenny from our public affairs team joins us. We are checking back in with some of the folks he met early on in the pandemic who suffered job losses and who are uh, in many instances, changing careers because of the long-haul economic effects of the pandemic. Andy, what other factors are holding workers back? That's a great question. I, I talked with Courtney Jensen, who's the director of a nonprofit called Family Promise. Uh, they've, for example, helped to distribute relief funds from the federal government and other sources. And she said that demand for help remains really strong. Um, they help a range of people, including people experiencing homelessness. But she said one problem for uh, people who are kind of working poor is childcare. That 
with schools and daycares constantly opening and closing over the past year, that's come with uncertainty that's made it really hard for lower income parents and caregivers to keep working because you don't know what's going to happen with your kid the next week. Some people were in and out of jobs. They weren't making enough. A lot of people got sick. You know, a lot of people had COVID or someone in their family did, or they didn't have any childcare for their kids. So they really couldn't work. So you can see in a continuing way that the virus itself is still holding back workers and businesses. Because of the effect on those workers and business owners' children. Did you talk to anyone in that kind of situation? Totally. I talked to Amber Talley. She's a single mom in North Glen. She had left a corporate contracting job right before the pandemic to start a cleaning business so that she could fit her schedule around her teenagers' lives. So this is sounding familiar. But the pandemic ended up really hurting her new business. And, you know, she wasn't even able to collect unemployment for six months because of the problems with the independent workers unemployment program. Here's a snippet of our conversation. How did you survive? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Some of it was community-based. I reached out for assistance um, through different faith-based organizations. I applied everywhere that you could think of for rental assistance, which unfortunately, for the longest time, nothing ever panned out. Um, Pretty much sold everything that I had that was of value. And, you know, it just um, doesn't have a happy ending. It went from bad to worse. Now, she was able to eventually get some help with rent from that nonprofit that I mentioned earlier, Family Promise. And now business is picking up. But first of all, she's still dealing with the debt, the damage to her credit. And like we were talking about, she's constantly having to adjust her work schedule to deal with COVID outbreaks, either at her kid's school or at the places that she's cleaning for work. And then add on to that, her landlord refused to renew her lease. So her rent went up $400 a month in the middle of this. And all her other bills are increasing too. So she's really been wiped out. And now she's feeling the squeeze from inflation and other economic factors. Unfortunately, I'm not at a point where I can be financially in a positive where I'm actually uh, building my savings. Um, I don't see when or where that can actually happen. Eddie, these stories are so diverse. Is there an overarching theme you picked up having circled back to these folks? It's hard to say. Uh, We know it's a really different situation for workers, that some have new opportunities, but they're also facing new challenges from the kind of unpredictable ways the economy's spinning out of this pandemic. And, you know, overall, I'm just glad that I did this because it was was nice, no matter what, to catch up with people who I had only heard from kind of in the depths of their despair earlier. Mm. I think people really liked being able to share what had changed. And, you know, again, it just underlines that the economy is really complicated. We're dealing with a set of factors that we've never really encountered before. And you really have to look at the data and talk to real people to start to grasp all the different ways that this fits together. Which you've done here, and we're grateful for it. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. CPR's Andrew Kenny has spent the last two years reporting on how the pandemic affected people's jobs and finances. More of his reporting at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues as a new year brings new state laws. We'll run through some of the most significant. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's rare for a classical musician to become a household name, but in the 1970s, that was the case for Denver-born violinist Eugene Fodor. Known for his stunning talent, rock star good looks, and winning an international music competition in Moscow during the Cold War, Fodor charmed audiences from stages around the world and on NBC's Tonight Show. 
was 10 when he made his solo debut at the Denver Symphony Orchestra. And Fodor had a special lifelong connection with horses, thanks to growing up on a ranch near Morrison. He could play his fiddle standing on the back of his horse, which met him at the Denver airport when Fodor came home from his triumph in Moscow, and he especially appreciated a good horsehair bow, which he described to Johnny Carson in 1977. It comes from the tail of white horses. The tail of white horses. Well, that's close. Preferably from a colder climate. In other words, a cold horse is what we're reading. With a warm tail. With a warm tail. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Coble Urban and Mountain Communities. State lawmakers return to work today, and by the time the legislative session ends in May, they'll likely have passed hundreds of new laws. But let's not put the cart before the horse. Many laws from last session have only just taken effect, laws that affect your life. Our public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, is going to guide us through some of them. Howdy, Megan. Hey, Ryan. One law that took effect January 1st, really caught your attention. Rules around when someone's driver's license can be suspended. Uh, Yes, this change puts Colorado uh, as part of a national movement to rethink when uh, the government takes away people's licenses. Uh, You know, for a long time, Colorado, like a lot of states, used the threat of suspending or revoking people's driver's licenses to get them to pay fines or to make it to court dates. Uh, And it's become clear in recent years that those policies can become a trap for people, pulling them deeper and deeper into the justice system and setting up a cycle where it may be impossible for them to get their life back on track. So uh, by saying Uh, as the new law does, that you can only use your license for things that show that you're a bad driver, Colorado is trying to keep people out of that cycle. But if drivers won't lose their licenses for things like unpaid court fees, isn't there a risk they just won't pay them? I mean, if the state is giving up a stick, does it have a carrot at the ready? Not really. Uh, And that is something they are thinking about, though. Uh, They're studying what other methods they could impose to encourage or maybe even threaten people uh, to go to court and pay their fines. Uh, On the fine side, uh, Andrew Kenny, the reporter who actually covered this bill, I'm just the editor who's piggybacking on his work, (laughs) uh, talked to a group that advocates for these kind of law changes uh, that says the the payment rate for court fines actually went up in California when it stopped suspending licenses uh, with the theory that by allowing people to keep legally driving, they could keep getting to work, they kept getting paychecks, and they actually had a better ability to pay their obligations. Hmm. Staying in the realm of justice reform, the new year also brought a significant change for victims of child sexual abuse. Tell us about that, Megan. Yes, uh, this new law does away with the statute of limitations for victims of abuse to sue their abuser or to sue an institution like the the church or a youth group uh, that may have been culpable in allowing or covering up the abuse. Okay, this has to do with statute of limitations. I think of the interviews that I've done with survivors. I mean, it sometimes takes them decades to come to terms with what happened, even longer to open up about it and decide to pursue a case. And by which point the clock has often run out. Exactly. That was a big part of the impetus behind this. Uh, The way one of the sponsors, Representative Rhonda Fields, put it to me, it's not fair that victims should have to produce their evidence within two years or five years or a set amount of time because survivors live with the after effects of abuse their whole lives. Uh, One thing I do want to be clear on, though, this law is specifically about civil lawsuits. Uh, When it comes to criminal prosecutions for felony sex crimes against a child, Colorado already did not have a statute of limitations there. 
Okay, there are now new rules for medical cannabis users limiting how much product they can purchase in a single day. Why did lawmakers think that needed to be changed? Well, their concern is really all about teenagers, people too young to legally buy cannabis in Colorado, getting their hands on specifically highly potent concentrated products. And those are uh, things where the THC has been extracted and really amped up uh, into a form that's often smoked or vaped. Uh, They're called things like wax and shatter and a lot of other names. Uh, And the level of THC in these products can be up to like nine times what a user would get from smoking cannabis flower. All right. And so there's a fear that teenagers are consuming these more potent products when they shouldn't, I guess. Yeah, the science is out on what their use may do to teenage brains in particular. Um, But lawmakers have certainly been hearing from a lot of parents uh, with stories of teens who they say have become dependent on these products, uh, who have suffered from psychosis or suicidal thoughts after heavily using them, uh, and who really wanted the state to do something. Well, connect the dots for us here, though. Why have concerns about younger teens using cannabis concentrates led to new rules for medical cardholders? That was actually a question that I I put to to Benta Berkland as she was reporting on this. She's the uh, reporter who covered covered this law, and I want to give her credit on that. Um, The belief is that what is happening is that younger medical cardholders, some of them, uh, are buying and diverting these products. Uh, Now, remember, you have to be 21 to buy recreational cannabis, but you can get a card when you're 18 for medical if you get a doctor's recommendation. Mm. And there are currently almost 3,500 teens aged 18 to 20 who have medical cards. What does this new law say exactly? Well, first, it makes it harder for younger people to get a medical card by requiring them to get a recommendation from two different medical providers at two different practices. Uh, Then it limits how much concentrate they can buy each day to two grams. Uh, For older medical card holders, the limit also dropped uh, from 40 grams down to eight grams, making it the same as recreational customers. And finally, it requires tracking of medical sales to ensure that someone isn't just going from store to store and buying their daily maximum at each. I guess you could call that dispensary shopping. Um, Was there any pushback from people who use cannabis medically? I mean, these are some significant changes. Oh, absolutely. And there was a lot of fear, uh, in particular from families with younger children with severe medical conditions, worried that it would make it uh, difficult for them to continue their medical regimes. So there are carve-outs to uh, acknowledge that. A doctor can recommend that a young person needs more than two grams of concentrate a day. Uh, And there are exceptions to the daily purchase limit if people can show that they have a hard time getting to a, a dispensary because of where they live or because they have a disability that makes it hard to shop so frequently. Okay, we've covered, what is it, three new laws so far. Are there a few others you'd throw in before we go, Megan? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, there were a few things that went into effect this year that are uh, consumer protection oriented. So there are new rules for automatically renewing subscription services. I know I have plenty of those. (laughs) They are aimed at making sure they don't keep charging people forever without giving them fair warning to try to cancel if they want to. Uh, And interestingly, there's actually like some specific provisions in there for dating services. So I guess there were some specific concerns about their uh, subscription services. Uh, And there's also a new law that allows state regulators to oversee non-bank mortgage lenders. They've become a really big part of the marketplace since the housing crash. And uh, they these are companies like Mr. Cooper or uh, uh, others, and they are regulated by the federal government, but the state also wants some say, and so now it has it. 
Where Lies Touch Your Daily Life, the changes coming in the new year. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you, Ryan. Megan Verlee is CPR Public Affairs Editor. She is also overseeing this week's coverage of the new legislative session and the governor's State of the State Address Thursday. We'll carry it live at 11 a.m. tomorrow on CPR News and KRCC. Speaking of the governor, he's back on our show Tuesday. What do you want us to ask him? Email your questions to coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. Drug and alcohol addiction compound the issues that lead to homelessness and keep people in it. CPR's Claire Cleveland reports on a program that has given a group of men new tools to help in their recovery. She introduces us to one man and his family. When Ellie Bontrager's son was born, she had a sense that one day he'd cause some grief. After praying over the baby boy, a pastor said he had a prophecy from God. And that is that he is going to struggle and bring you a lot of heartache as a young person, but he will get the victory over that. Evan Bontrager is now 32, and for the last few years, he's missed family gatherings, birthdays, and holidays, and not just because of COVID. You know, there's no point of even showing up. Like, I do not want to face them. You know, I just stay high right here. Bontrager grew up in the town of Lyman. In high school, he got into trouble for shoplifting and vandalism. Then in college, he started drinking and using heavier drugs like heroin. He says it started with partying and just having fun. Eventually it was like, oh, this is, you know, because you're trying to get outside the feelings or, you know, whatever. You don't want to be feeling this feeling, so drown it with alcohol. But those feelings he was trying to ignore never really went away. After dropping out of college, he spent his 20s moving around the state, trying to keep a job and using drugs. His dad, Warren, says the family tried to help him however they could. We would try to minimize the damage, though, like losing their bikes or their IDs or their whatever. And so I would drive five hours to find something that he left behind and collected and stored at our house again, waiting for him to get back out of prison and start over again. Last summer in Fort Collins, police arrested Bontrager for breaking and entering into an abandoned house where he was staying. He says it was an awakening. Oh, it was so embarrassing. I wouldn't be sleeping in a frat house if I wasn't on drugs or in a dire situation. When he got out of jail, Bontrager vowed to get help. He heard about something called the New Life Program at the Denver Rescue Mission and decided to join. He's lived there since June. Jonathan Sawadee directs residential programs at the mission. He says this program offers men a community to help them get clean. I think people think you can beat addiction on your own, like it's all about your willpower. But really, it's, it's about relationships and letting people in and connection. The program started in 1994. Last year, 36 men graduated. In 2020, the number was nearly twice that. After COVID hit, the program had to downsize. Most men are sober and housed a year after the program. 
Bontrager has taken classes, done therapy sessions, and even joined a running club. For Christmas, he earned the opportunity to stay off-site with his family in Glenwood Springs. <laughs> woo, woo, woo. Can you see it? Whoa, a hat. That's audio that Bontrager recorded Christmas morning. He was excited to finally spend a holiday with his parents and siblings. But it wasn't easy staying sober. There was alcohol in the house, even some of those little liquor-filled chocolates. So my thought was like, hey, you could probably go eat a couple of those. They look good. Like, they won't give you blitzed or anything. It's not even like relapsing. Oh, well, if you did that, then you could probably smoke too. And there's dispensaries all around. No, I don't know. As long as it doesn't happen again, things are okay. But Bontrager didn't drink or use. He says it was easier this time, and he was proud of himself. I didn't have anything to hide or cover up, so I didn't have to worry about my story. Just be yourself, tell the truth. That's the easiest way to do it. And he says he didn't feel the usual anxiety that once came with seeing his family. Bontrager's parents say they keep praying that he'll stay the course. Here's his mom, Ellie. It's just a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute struggle for these guys. It's just a very, very tough thing for them and their families. Bontrager is on track to graduate from the New Life program soon. He hopes to find a place to live and a job. He's now searching for programs to train him to work on wind farms. You know, there's all kinds of things in life that be... (laughs) Life is so full, you know? There's so many things that... I know the possibilities are endless. For now, he really just wants to live life without having to depend on drugs and alcohol. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. There's a new bilingual micro school in Denver. Micro because it only has about a dozen students. La Luz emphasizes character development, relationship building, and learning by doing. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine says the school's founders are trying to reinvent a sixth-grade education. Does anybody know what a quetzal is? About a dozen kids peer up at the dragon Quetzalcoatl. It's suspended in the air above them, wearing a feathered coat of blue, green, purple, and pink made of clay and PVC pipe. It's your country's bird. That's on the flag. The tour guide at the Museo de las Americas tells the sixth graders about the Mesoamerican deity Quetzalcoatl's cosmic conflicts in the creation of a series of suns and earths. The Guatemalans have their own stories. But she connects the stories behind the art to the kids' own Latino identity. Helping middle schoolers understand who they are is one objective of La Luz School. It feels like I'm connected in a way. 11-year-old Alondra Mendez says she's never had this kind of history in school up until now. It feels like my history is getting out and it's not just being tossed aside and like not taught, you know? What do you guys see here? The school says that's crucial to middle schoolers figuring out who they are, developing into a confident, independent adult. Being here at the museum to learn, rather than from a book, is another critical part of the new tuition-free independent school, which opened just this year. We know that by giving authentic experiences in the community, the kids are actually learning. Its founder, Kyle Gamba, spent 15 years as a Denver principal and teacher, seeing that kids sitting at a desk all day weren't learning deeply. He's never had parents say their goal was for their kids to crush it academically. At the end of the day, we really want our kids to be 
good kids. We want them to be good humans. And so why are we not focusing a little bit more on that? He and the school's two teachers designed an intensive set of classes in the mountains, in museums, at the Denver Zoo, and in theaters that lets kids ask questions directly and learn actively. A big change from how it felt at her old regular school, says Andrea Cota. Going into a room, sitting down, and being there for like hours. She'd fidget, get in trouble for not quietly listening to the teacher. Here, it's different. They understand that we are fidgety, that we're not at that age to stand still. If a student needs a break to wake up a little, they can do that. Movement and taking academic subjects out of their silos is key at La Luz, says educational counselor Jubitsa Figueroa. For example, in a lesson on how robots may take over the fast food industry, they used math and had conversations about the ethics of the matter. In traditional schools, it's... Let's crank out some of these equations and, and then later maybe we'll talk about ethics. The school's two bilingual teachers are more like mentors. Figueroa helps kids learn to name the emotions they're feeling, and she's transparent about her own mental health obstacles. Little by little, they're also understanding that, oh, like this is a safe space, so I can engage in these hard conversations. I can understand my own emotions. How the other teacher, Alfredo Cervantes, was hired at La Luz says a lot about what's important to the school. He was pretty happy as a Denver sixth grade science teacher, but when Gamba told him about where the school would be... Southwest Denver. I'm like, that's that's where I'm from. A heavily Latino part of the city that doesn't have expeditionary-type schools. Gamba told Cervantes that families would play a big role in the school. In fact, seven or eight families would conduct the job interview. Cervantes decided to bring his own family to the interview. That would make or break the deal. It was awesome. Like, I, I felt like I could actually be me. In the first few weeks of school, the sixth graders learned to be themselves. They spent weeks hiking in their neighborhoods and in the mountains. 11-year-old Joaquin Varela says this school feels different. I feel more open. I can, like, feel comfortable talking. I feel comfortable with nature. His classmate, Andrea, also learned things about herself on long hikes. I learned that, like, no matter how much your mind says, I can't do it, you can change that into a positive inner monologue and say, yes, I can, because your body is meant for that physical activity. But these students will one day need to transition into high schools, still largely focused on academic standards, heavy content knowledge, and test scores. School founder Gamba does worry about that. But the school's trio of leaders hope the skills students learn at La Luz are for the long haul, life. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner, with thanks to a team that puts up with my fidgetiness. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. 